Welcome to the Binge Essentials Podcast. I'm your host, David Rocha, and joining me as always, fresh from the bullpen of the Daily Bugle, Romeo Mora. Romeo, what's the scoop? You know, trying to figure out if Spider-Man is friend or foe. Is he a menace or is he our friendly neighborhood webhead? We don't know yet. (laughs) That's right. Today, we're going to be talking about the Spider-Man Trilogy. The Spider-Man Trilogy is an American superhero film series directed by Sam Raimi. Based on the comic book series by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, Spider-Man follows Peter Parker, played by Tobey Maguire, as he's bitten by a radioactive spider and gains superpowers. With his newfound abilities, Peter adopts the Spider-Man persona to protect New York City from a slew of superpowered menaces. The film series also stars Kirsten Dunst as Mary Jane Watson, James Franco as Harry Osborn, Willem Dafoe as Norman Osborn, Rosemary Harris as Aunt May, and J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. Joining us today to talk about the Spider-Man trilogy is nobody. I am the guest. (laughs) I am going to be sliding over to the guest seat and Romeo is going to be taking over the hosting duties all by himself and I might as well let Romeo take the reins from here. All right. What made you interested in this franchise? Did you start at the beginning? Did you catch in the middle of the series? Well, when we were talking about what to do for the show, Spider-Man wasn't my first choice initially. We were going one direction and I said, well, I'm not really that into this at the moment. It's not really something that I hold so close to me. So I had to think a little longer about it. And there's one that we do plan to do later on, but we just didn't have time for me Mm -hmm. to really watch the episodes again because it actually has been a while since I watched that show and I wanted to do it justice. And so I thought, well, what about a film franchise? And that's when I landed on Spider-Man. This was something that came out back in 2002, back when I was in high school, before I was interested in being a, quote, cinephile, end quote. I didn't read comics growing up, but if there's one thing that I did enjoy during my childhood was watching the Spider-Man cartoons from the 1995 series. And so when they said that they were going to make a Spider-Man film, I was excited. Being a fan from the cartoon, I thought, oh, how cool. Like, they're actually going to see if they can pull this off. I see the trailers and I'm like, wow, look at these special effects. This is impressive that they're even able to pull this off. And so me and my dad went to go see the first film because, I don't know, my dad just wanted to go see a movie. Me and my dad don't have anything in common. It's just like, <laughs> but if there's one, but if there's one thing we can do together is watch something. So, <laughs> right, we went to go see the first Spider-Man movie, and we both came out really liking it. And especially me, I thought, wow, at the time, I'm thinking this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. Of course, my opinion has changed since, but I came out being very impressed by this movie. I didn't know anybody in this movie. I didn't know who Tobey Maguire was. You know, I didn't know anything about the Pussy Posse from the late 90s with oh, Leonardo God. DiCaprio and oh, David Blaine. <laughs> oh my God. I forgot about that. I could have sworn Jake Gyllenhaal was part of that group too. I did my research. He was not. And we're not going to go into every I'm, single I'm, member because there's a, <laughs> I know, there's a lot. There, research, there's, yeah. there's a lot. Oh dear God. Yeah. They were like the frat boy version of the Brat Pack. They were. So I didn't know who Tobey Maguire was. Kirsten Dunst. I knew who she was because I happened to see Bring It On. I had no idea who James Franco was. I didn't know who Willem Dafoe was. I didn't know who Sam Raimi was. I think I might have heard of Evil Dead, but I hadn't seen any of those movies. The most recognizable face to me in that movie was Macho Man Randy Savage. <laughs> oh, <laughs> see, I knew who Kristen Dunst because I was the weird kid who watched Interview with a Vampire way before. <laughs> he probably should have, but I knew who Sam Raimi was because he did Xena Warrior Princess and Hercules. I was way too young for Evil Dead and all of that, all of his other works. But I knew Bruce Campbell because he was on Xena and Hercules. 
So there when he go. showed up on all three films, I'm like, oh my God, Autolycus, the King of Thieves. But speaking of the trailer, do you remember the original trailer? No, I didn't see the trailer you're talking about. If you're talking about oh. the Twin Towers trailer. Yep, I remember that one. I think I was able to see it in theaters first before mm-hmm. they took it off because of 9-11. But I know I saw it right after because of course the coverage, they, they showed it because they're like, yeah, because of 9-11, they can't do it because it was a nice little teaser. And I don't remember if it was actually that scene was in the film or not, or just a teaser to excite people for Spider-Man and what they can it do was, with technology. You're right. It was simply a teaser to get people excited. It was not in the film or had any plans to be in the film. But I didn't know about that. They also had a promotional poster having the Twin Towers with Spider-Man. That I, and- remember, that I do remember seeing in the theaters. You know, someone's sitting on that because now that's like a treasure, it's like a Absolutely. rare collector edition. Yeah. So there was a lot of blank slates for me coming into this movie, being introduced to all these talents. And I thought everybody did a really good job. It made me excited to go see Spider-Man 2. Absolutely. I, I was thinking to myself, wow, I hope they make another one of these because back then, right. sequels to superhero movies was kind of rare. And the one that actually kind of slipped through the cracks and got a second film was Blade came out in 2002 right. as well as Spider-Man. Blade 2 coming out because of the success of the first film. And again, I mean, that one was just like, it harkens so much more as being an action movie more than being a comic book movie, I right. guess you could say. So it made sense that people wanted to see a sequel. You're hitting on those things because it did make comic book movies seem profitable in the mm-hmm. eyes of executives because for fans, we've always wanted this. As a kid, I dreamt of seeing what we now have. I was hoping like one day I'll have an Avengers movie where they meet the X-Men and we're close. We're not quite there yet, <laughs> but we got Spider-Man hanging out with Captain America at one point. But then to see Spider-Man in a comic book accurate costume, because I was deprived of that during X-Men. I'm not going to lie. X-Men made me sad in terms of the translation from page to the screen in terms of their iconic looks. But then you see Spidey and you see him actually swing from skyscraper to skyscraper. It was a game changer for sure. Absolutely. So after you've seen that first film, what stuck with you? What was your initial impressions right after? My initial impressions right after was how it really made me feel like I just watched the live action version of the animated series in 1995. And by that, I mean, there are so many emotional beats that those cartoons really hit. Peter trying to juggle being Spider-Man and being a good friend dangling his relationships with Felicia Hardy and Mary Jane. There, There's just so much going on in those cartoons. And, and of course, there's Aunt May, the relationship he has with Aunt May. I did some rewatches of the animated series and I forgot they even explored his parents' backstory too. And I forgot all about that. Mm-hmm. And even though they don't quite do that in these movies, you really do feel the emotional weight from that first film. And I was really impressed how they captured that. Like it wasn't just about this is Spider-Man. Here's the villain. It was like... Like, no, here's this emotional journey. That's a big part of the story. And I really love the first movie for that. So that was one thing. And the other thing is, like I mentioned before, the casting, like you have to get the casting right to kind of fit that mood. And I thought Tobey Maguire ended up being a pretty good Peter Parker for that reason. At the time, I didn't think about whether or not he was the perfect fit for Spider-Man. You know, later Mm -hmm. down the road, when we see other iterations of Spider-Man, then we can make Mm -hmm. some comparisons and, and contrasting. But at the time, it 
it just worked. But just on the Peter Parker side of things, I thought it really fit. And my God, Cliff Robertson and Rosemary Harris as Uncle Ben and Aunt May, that will never be succeeded for me. Like those two are just perfect for those roles. And that just boils down to what great casting that Sam Raimi and, and the casting crew does for this because sure, you can just get a name for these type of roles. And that's what they do later on in the sequels. I mean, the reboots and the reboots, you know, you got Martin Sheen and Sally Field, who are great actors and did a pretty good job in their own right playing those roles. Mm-hmm. And then you got Haunt Aunt May with Marissa Tomei. <laughs> wow. <laughs> We're going there, okay? Well, that's what people call her. They call her Haunt Aunt May. I, I, know. So I, what I can don't you like say? it. And, and, I'll, and I'll defend all the, the casting for Homecoming once we get to secondary characters. No, I'm fine with the casting. I'm just yeah. saying that nothing makes you feel more grounded and make you feel like those two could be your aunt and uncle or even like your grandparents right. than Cliff Robertson and, and Rosemary Harris. Oh, man, I just really fell in love with those characters. And of course, who can ever top the charismatic Willem Dafoe, the guy who really puts all himself into a role. Like people don't realize that he wanted to suit up in that Green Goblin costume, even though it's like 580 piece costume that takes a half hour to put on. He said, I'm putting that baby on because you guys aren't going to capture the mannerisms and the body language that I'm able to display as an actor using computer graphics. And I just thought, wow, what a great actor and what a great performance. I will say at the time, I didn't enjoy the campiness when I saw that film as a senior in high school. But now as an older viewer, I think I appreciate it more because I think it set the tone for what Sam Raimi wanted to do. He didn't want it to be bogged down by the seriousness of, say, the X-Men. He wanted to create an enjoyable family film. Yeah, and I would, but, what another thing that I noticed, even though I wasn't familiar with Sam Raimi, but with my rewatch, I realized, wow, Sam Raimi was able to find that perfect balance of providing what the studio wanted and also still being true to himself because that campiness is seen throughout his filmography. When you see it in the Evil Dead mm-hmm. trilogy, Dark Man, after Spider-Man, you see it in Drag Me to Hell and Oz and the Great and Powerful. Like he always has that part of him that you just can't beat out of him. And I think that really shows through in that first Spider-Man movie. But you're right. It's like if you're not used to it, then you might not be ready for it. But when you look at it in retrospect, you realize, oh, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was able to pull back his campiness and he knew just how much to give in order for you to have fun with what you're supposed to have fun, a comic book movie. So let's go into the um, main characters. We talked a little bit about Spider-Man. You specifically said that you enjoy Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker. How did you feel about him behind the mask as the Spider-Man persona? I had issues with it. He's a great Peter Parker, but I never bought the quips. And that's totally understood. Understandable. I mean, firstly, there's not a lot of quips, not in comparison to what we've seen in comics and in the animated series, where it's just like spitfire, joke after joke after joke. Uh, it's a lot more subdued in the first film. And you're right, maybe the delivery isn't quite there. I rewatched the movies in preparation for this podcast mm-hmm. and I realized, yeah, I mean, his quips aren't the strongest points. It really is more about the dramatic performance behind the mask more than mm-hmm. the quippy Spider-Man that we know. So 
that I am able to sympathize now at Mm -hmm. this stage of my life that I can see where people were coming from. Because before I defended it, I was like, nah, man, what are you talking about? It's great. I think he's great. I think he's funny. I think it works. Like many people of that time died on that hill. But you're right, though. At the time, it was him and the voice actor. Now that I opened that door, (laughs) I mean, we cannot compare the three Spider-Men. As you heard, I believe that Toby McGuire was a great Peter Parker. But you're right. You didn't quite believe him being this awesome superhero. Because I feel like he carried that quote unquote Peter Luck too much. Because I kind of felt like when he put on the suit, he can sort of let his cares away. And it was kind of like better for lack of words, shield to be more than anything he was capable of, of being at when he was walking around town as Peter Parker. Now, Andrew Garfield was too damn cool and emo (laughs) to be (laughs) Peter Parker. When he put the mask on, he comes off as that cocky little shedhead as many villains would. Almost too much so, honestly. You almost kind of hate him. You kind of do, but he had that confidence and he had the quips. What I can say about that is that if you're going to talk that much trash you better back it up. And that's where I will say succeeds for Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man. In that sense, I can't get mad at that performance or dislike it. You know, it's like, right. well, that's what they were going for. In it. And hey, the writing and the action, it worked out. That's how they portrayed but, it. And it worked. Right. By the same time, he kind of reminds me of that trash high school boyfriend. Because <laughs> the way he treats Gwen and then breaks his promise to her dying father, I got issues. And that for me, that's what I don't like about that Peter and in the second one he does walk back on betraying that father's wishes right. so I'll defend it there the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man he keeps a promise under any circumstance like he really made a strong commitment to not let Mary Jane be part of his life above and beyond like here is the woman that he's loved since he was such a young kid she is openly inviting him to start a relationship and see where it goes from there hell this is everything he ever wanted but because he's spider-man and he knows the risks that come with it he continuously says no or he lets her down over and over and over Mm -hmm. again he just doesn't budge it's actually kind of amazing how much she kept the door open for him as long as she did and it was like years that she kept the door open hoping that he would come around and be Mm -hmm. the love of her life but he didn't until he was left with no choice in spider-man 2 so that's where i have a lot of respect for that character in comparison to the Andrew Garfield one. Right. And then is Tom Holland, who I call the love child of Toby Maguire and Andrew Garfield. That's Let totally me explain. Fair. Holland pretty much captures what I want. He captured the awkwardness of a teenager as Peter Parker. And even though like some would say, well, his Spider-Man's kind of close to Toby Maguire's. And I would argue because he's still in high school. And I think what I love about it is they're doing something I wish Raimi did because I think his version of Spider-Man would have worked so much better if they kept him in high school longer. And I know they couldn't because you have a grown ass man. (laughs) (laughs) We will get into that. You had literal weeks of filming. It literally became too unbelievable. Yeah, Tom McGuire brought a lot of things. And and of course, we wouldn't have the Peter Parker slash Spider-Man that we have now without him. And for a lot of people, that is their definitive Spider-Man. No, Uh, but I totally get where you're coming from there. I do agree now that Tom Holland is the best of both. He's the right combination for what the MCU needs and I think what fans need and it works 
each one absolutely has their pros and cons. I don't like it when people watch old clips on YouTube of these Spider-Man movies and say, Tom Holland Spider-Man wouldn't do this. Tom Holland Spider-Man couldn't get back up from this. And it's just kind of like, all right, stop it. You're just being silly by pitting these Spider-Mans against each other. It's fun to compare and contrast. But when people try to do like versus mode of these different Spider-Men, that's where I have to draw the line. <laughs> I was watching a Twitch stream and someone was saying like they were hoping that all three will come together in an upco- the upcoming Spider-Man film. And they were saying, I just want to see him do battles. And he realized that Tobey Maguire's version is so much better because he has organic webbing. He doesn't need cartridges or web shooters. <laughs> And he's damn, unreasonably right. strong. <laughs> right? And I'm, like, and I'm like, damn, you're right. My whole um, thinking about Toby Maguire just want to what, like flipped on me. I'm like, thank you, Smosh, for correcting me <laughs> in my <laughs> stupidity. <laughs> and it's not uncommon because I think we do that in a lot in pop culture. Most notably, Batman, Superman, and of course, the mother of all sci-fi debates. Who's the better Doctor Who? Like, I can enjoy all three. It can't be fun, but I also feel like it could all also go in that toxic place where it goes from like fun debate to like I'm going to murder you now as it yeah. always does on Twitter. True and those are the type of arguments I tend to stay away from. There's no real value that comes out of them. Yeah and, and also like I said earlier I didn't read the comics so I'm not that type of oh, yeah. person who is I don't want to do the stereotypical nerd voice but you know where I'm getting at. It's yeah. like I'm not I'm not the one who's like well an issue blah 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 you know I, I'm just I'm not into that sort of fandom and, and again and then that's why I appreciate these movies so much is because they don't really take straight storylines from the comics more so they grab some inspirations and even perfectly reimagine panels onto screen to pay homage to those moments they don't bind themselves down to any specific source material which I really appreciate there weren't that many easter eggs Raimi finds a way to make this relatable for all audiences and he did the same thing with Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man. I feel like I can relate to this Spider-Man, especially in Spider-Man 2 when he's trying to juggle a social life, a work life, and Uh being Spider-Man. It's just like when you're spinning all these plates at once and running around trying to keep them all spinning, eventually one of them's going to fall, two of them, maybe all of them fall. Uh And you just have to decide for yourself what is the one part that you want to sacrifice in order to find that balance and be happy. So we, we touched a little bit on Mary Jane played by Kristen Dunst. For you who's seen the cartoon, how did you feel about her portrayal? Well, they're not much alike. I'll start with no. that. Yeah, this one was kind of tough. I kind of sympathize for Kirsten Dunst because she was kind of put in a tough position. If you want to play off of what I was used to in the Spider-Man 1995 cartoon, it's a total miscast. But that's not to say that there weren't things I didn't enjoy about her. And again, I think Raimi just really, more than anything wanted to focus on the dramatic grounded performances of these characters and so Kirsten Dunst who had that background from the indie scene like in um, The Virgin Suicides mm-hmm. that's where I think what she was going to bring to the table in this uh, as Mary Jane so I had to reprogram myself to be into that I you know again I thought she was good for these films 
the current Mary Jane is also very different from what we're used to from the animated series and in comics. Even that Mary Jane, played by Zendaya, is outclassing the Kirsten Dunst Mm -hmm. Mary Jane. And again, it's not Kirsten Dunst's fault. I thought she did great. The problem is they didn't give her too much to do. She was always pining for Peter or she was failing at being an Mm -hmm. actress or she was getting caught up by these villains who would use her as the damsel and bait for Spider-Man. So kind of unfortunate in that way. But her and Tobey Maguire really did have good chemistry. So I'm able to forgive them for that. She's not one of my favorite characters of the film series. She works best with Tobey Maguire or she works best with James Franco. At the time, I'm like, oh, she's playing this character wrong. And I think a lot of people our age thought that. Mary Jane and the cartoon was very accurate to what was portrayed in the comic books at the time. She was feisty. She didn't take crap from no one. But then I came to realize that, oh, they combined the two characters of Mary Jane Watson and Gwen Stacy. Mm -hmm. And you got a lot more Gwen Stacy out of that performance. And you sort of get a little um, homage to that famous comic book storyline, The Death of Gwen Stacy in the first film, when the Green Goblin sort of dangles Mary Jane Watson and um, Trolley. Now I'm thinking like it wasn't Dense's fault. She only had what she was given to work with. I was so unfair to her at the time because what did I know? I thought that she was just playing the character wrong or Raimi didn't understand the character. I didn't realize they created a hybrid character. But which made it more confusing when they added Gwen Stacy, who acted more like Mary Jane in Spider-Man 3. I appreciate what Kristen Dunst did with what she had to work with. She did ground Peter Parker. She added another wrinkle into the struggles that Peter has to deal with trying to be a good boyfriend in Spider-Man 3 or a good friend in Spider-Man 2. But she still doesn't have any agency because all we know is she comes from a messed up family life and all she does is wait around for Peter Parker. Granted, she was married. She was engaged to the astronaut. Which is totally random. Like, how would they even meet? It's a strange pairing. I get like connecting J. Jonah Jameson and Peter through Mary Jane and J. Jonah Jameson Jr. or whatever his name is. Just a Um, weird connection there. Sometimes you forget. Okay, so this is New York City. It's a big city. Millions of people live there. But the series kept finding ways to make it feel like so small with all these characters. It's so so small. I will say it was a little frustrating. But yeah, she did manage to move on with her life. But she was looking for any opportunity to ditch the astronaut for the poor college student photographer. (laughs) It's just an interesting dilemma. (laughs) The thing that bugged me the most that Peter had to struggle in his career, so did Mary Jane Watson. I don't know if you caught that or it bugged you because I always felt like, why does she have to inherit his dumb Parker luck? I never understood that because in the comic books, Mary Jane Watson was slightly successful on her own right. Sure, but here's what I'll say about what these characters are. They show how hard it is just to live in New York City on your Mm -hmm. own, to succeed on your own. I mean, this is something that's been known for decades. So it doesn't surprise me that these two characters at such young ages, let's not forget, they're still in their early 20s. So just expect them to be so darn successful in one of the most difficult cities to make a living in would have not worked for me. I like that they struggle. I forget 
they're supposed to be in their early 20s. And it's understandable to forget that. I'm not going to fight you on that. That's for sure. Yeah, because I see them. I'm like, oh, they're like in their late, early 30s. But you're right. That's why I do appreciate it. Peter Parker has that tenement building that he shares a communal bathroom with everyone on his floor. I appreciate that. I wish we got that realness with friends. We don't go into it. So let's talk about the Osborns. Let's start with Norman. Man, Norman is a real piece of work. Not only is he kind of a shitty dad, but he's also a workaholic who can't take no for an answer. And I get it. Like, you work so hard to get to a certain point that they were at with the project they had with the military. But sometimes you just got to accept the terms that it's just not going to work out. You got to move on. But of course, then you wouldn't have a supervillain. So Norman is great because he's very intelligent and... And the serum does make him a little crazy. And I liked that in the beginning of the first, uh, the beginning of the movie, after he has a serum, he actually has like blackouts, you know, like he doesn't even remember all the horrible things that he did, all the people he murdered and destruction that he caused. And then eventually he embraces all of it. And Willem Dafoe is able to just turn it on and off on a dime. He's such an incredible actor and he's been getting his due a lot as of late as an actor. And of course, everybody just has loved him over the last 30 years anyways. But I think it was this movie that really really put him on the map before he was a little bit of an indie darling you know he did platoon and last temptation of christ he had a bombastic performance in boondock saints in 1999 another low budget movie sure he was the villain in speed 2 cruise control but that movie bombed (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't until spider-man where we're like holy crap this guy's amazing and he's perfect in this role what i like most about it is that he knew how to do the voice if there's a voice that you're going to do for the Green Goblin, that's the voice. So I was really happy that he was able to do that. So the character himself, again, yeah, he sort of played like a surrogate father figure to Peter because, I mean, he didn't really like Harry. He thought Harry was a disappointment. He didn't think much of Harry dating Mary Jane. He's just an all-around jerk. He was a villain that you would love to hate. He was just perfect. And he's still considered one of the best villains that we've had in superhero movies of the 21st century. Maybe some people would say... It's too bad they killed him off. But for me, it's like I liked how they killed him off because it reminds me of the animated series again, where the vortex is behind the Green Goblin. The Green Goblin's like trying to get Spider-Man to save his life. And what he's really trying to do is lure him into a trap. He has the glider coming from behind to knock Spider-Man in and take him out. But Spider-Man, using his spidey sense, was able to avoid it. And the glider hits him and he goes into the vortex. That's not the last we saw Norman Osborn in the cartoon series as Green Goblin. And so they actually sort of do the same thing in the movie series where you still have Willem Dafoe cameo in the next two films as Norman with his voice and even physical presence to brainwash his son, Harry, to get revenge on Spider-Man. I thought they really did a good job with that. And the fight scene, the last line he delivers or the last two lines he delivers, like Godspeed, Spider-Man, he just switches it back on and then he's dying and he's like, Peter don't tell Harry and just flops over. It's like, oh my God, this guy's just so good. (laughs) Right. And the crazy thing is he wasn't even the first option. I mean, we're talking about Nicolas Cage, Jason Isaacs, John Malkovich, and Jim Carrey all turning down the role to play Norman before Mm -hmm. getting to Willem Dafoe. Nick Cage, that would have been absolutely awful. Jason Isaacs, eh, whatever. John Malkovich, I don't know how I feel about that. That one would have been a little uneven, I think. Jim Carrey, he probably would have done a pretty decent job if Raimi was able to, you know, pull him in, make sure that he's not doing the Riddler. (laughs) Right. So let's 
let's move on to Harry. I'm not going to lie. I do see this character in a different lens now. I don't really like Harry much. No. He is a bad friend. He doesn't listen. How many times over and over and over again does Peter have to tell him, hey, we need to talk. And he's more like, you killed my father. Dude, you didn't even see him kill your father. How do you even know that even is actually what happened? And then when you find out that it's Peter, instead of just saying, hey, let's talk about it. You're like, Peter, you're the one who killed my father. It's like, oh my God, how are you? He's your best friend. Why would your best friend kill your father? To me, it just made absolutely no sense. They did make him an idiot. I'll say that much. And like, here's the thing. Like, if they were to really follow the comic books, yeah, he turns into the goblin for a while. Though it's more of the abuse of his father that led him down that path rather than his blind hatred of Peter Parker. They worked through that and they ended up friends. I can understand the blind hatred of Spider-Man because all he sees is his mask. But you're right. Like, at some point, there should have been a cooling off period. And I felt like I was robbed of that discussion. Yes. So as a character, that's the one character that I think that fell short for me the most through all three films was Harry. And when we talk about the low points later, I'll go in a little bit more detail as to why that is. Do I like the casting as James Franco? It's fine. He does a decent job. I actually kind of like his performance in Spider-Man 3. Did you? I did because they actually gave him more to do. As cheesy as the amnesia plotline is, I kind of like them as like, hey, I'm painting now and, and just being like this nice, charming guy but at the same time it's like okay but where was his harry the first two spider-mans like even uh, even before amnesia even before his father died he wasn't even like this so it was kind of a strange attitude that he had in spider-man 3 but i mean james franco i he was pretty decent they gave him the material and he delivered what can i say i don't the one time i thought like i liked him is like those early scenes in the first spider-man film because he plays that angsty i'm a rich kid I don't want to be known as the rich kid guy and he does that so well but for me like the disappointment is there was no character growth he got really stunted after the death of his father that that's yeah. true that's like there true. is no character growth like he's a whole different character in Spider-Man 2 I don't recognize the character that he played in the first film he assumed a bigger responsibility he was now the CEO of Oscorp I'm surprised let's he be real here <laughs> right let's be real here I know I totally agree with you with that I don't think the board of directors would have ever in a million years had Harry be CEO of the company. Right. I don't know what shenanigans he might have pulled with his lawyers, but <laughs> it's just well, I mean, they um, Norman did kill off the board, oh, so there's really right. no one. But still, at this point, there would still be some investors that weren't there that would have pulled rank. Sure, because seriously, like as I understand, Oscorp was in a precarious situation, and I don't know how it just magically went away, even though they got that new contract. But Oscorp never delivered on that contract. Right. I think there needed to be more character development from him to take the serum to become the new goblin. Well, again, he's just running off of the revenge. He wants to get revenge for his father's death, and that's why he took the serum. I guess we can transition to the um, minor characters. Let's talk about Octavius, played by um, Alfred Molina. Molina wasn't exactly their first choice to play the role. They were thinking of That's Chris crazy. Cooper, Christopher Walken, Robert De Niro. Christopher Walken would have been absolutely oh. terrible. Robert De Niro, great actor. I don't know if this would have been the right role for him. No. Chris Cooper, I think, could have done it. But they got the right one here with Alfred Molina. And again, he sort of plays, once again, like he gives Peter like fatherly advice. It's almost like every movie, Peter needs to have some form of surrogate father. Right. That, that has to die. 
die. I'm sorry. Like, if you're in this universe and all of a sudden you get to know this guy named Peter Parker and you start offering him fatherly advice, you were dead two scenes later. But I love the performance. I thought this character was really cool. I liked how they used hand puppets in some scenes for the tentacles. And I thought the CGI looked really good with the tentacles. I love the battle scenes. I love the motivation. There was just a lot of really good things that came with this character. Honestly, there's really not much more to say about that. They follow all the same kind of steps of villainy that we had in the first movie with the Green Goblin. Yeah, I just remember waiting for Spider-Man 2 to come out. And when I found out that it was going to be Otto Octavius, I was like, oh, awesome. I can't wait. And when they released the image of what he was going to look like, it was like he had his like back turned to the city, looking down on the city. Right. And I was super pumped seeing that photo. Early days of internet, you're like trying to dig around and find this stuff. It's really fun. It takes me back to Ain't It Cool News with Harry Knowles digging up every little thing I could find. <laughs> Yeah, so I was super pumped and I was not disappointed. Spider-Man 2 ended up being my favorite movie of the three. And a lot of that does have to do with Otto. I thought that this was a very good villain. And the only thing I would say, though, is that physically he would not stand a chance against Spider-Man. There are moments where he almost like gets in a fist fight with them. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking to myself, you wouldn't stand a damn chance. He doesn't have super strength. Yeah. So he doesn't have the build to stand a Mm -hmm. chance against Spider-Man. So there was a moment there where I had to like suspend disbelief a little bit. Regardless, he's still using his tentacles so often that it's totally fine. He can stand a chance against Spider-Man if he's using his tentacles. He's the reason why Spider-Man 2 is my favorite film of this whole franchise. I think he's the right villain. He's just as smart as Peter Parker. He's charismatic. You feel for the guy. And I love the fact that he's not evil because he just just woke up that way that day. It was pretty much, he was kind of like subjective to those negative impulses from like the harness. Overall with that film, it's so simplistic that it's good. It wasn't this weird thing that Green Goblin and Sandman and Venom were doing in, in those other films. Yeah, his motivation wasn't personal. It was just more like, I was really close to accomplishing this scientific breakthrough and I need to rebuild and do it again. It was pretty much proving to himself that his wife didn't have to die for nothing. And I thought, okay, damn, I'll give this. That's like next level crazy and I'm on board with this. Yeah, since we are on those minor characters and we are talking about villains, then I might as well jump into Sandman and and Venom. Venom. So let's start with Sandman because this is the most convoluted way to bring conflict between Peter Parker and this new character. Yeah, so when I first heard about Thomas Hayden Church being cast as Sandman, I thought, oh, great. He's cool. He's a good actor. He'll have to bulk up and look the part. But no, he's more than capable of being Sandman. Along with that, you already knew that there was the conflict with Harry and that he's going to be he's the new goblin as they like to name him then you hear about them also including venom and that's when i had my first that sounds like too many villains for a superhero movie so i was totally down with sandman so sam raimi had this idea of having sandman and having a different villain team up with him he was thinking more of vulture we know ben kingsley was sort of in talks to play the role and it just all kind of fell through
true. What ended up happening is they wanted to include Venom, and by they, I mean the producers, and there's a specific mm-hmm. one, Avi Arad, who's part of Spider-Man properties for many, many, many years. He actually convinced Raimi to include Venom because he wanted to have an inclusion of a popular character rather than Raimi just choosing his favorites. That's only just the tip of the iceberg of how this really all fell apart. So with Sandman, it was like, okay, you have this guy, motivations are clear. How he becomes Sandman was like one of the coolest scenes, seeing him slowly form back into a human after being like vaporized in the sand. Really great scene. Probably one of the best scenes out of the three movies, to be quite honest. And if you want to get a secondary villain to support that, totally fine. You've already been setting up for two movies that is going to be New Goblin. So we can just roll with that, right? Nope. What they decided to do is somehow tie in Sandman's background into Peter Parker's on the night of Uncle Ben's death, having Flint Marco being the one who pulls the trigger and killing Uh Uncle Ben by accident, mind you, but still Uh the very fact that they did that bugged the crap out of me. I remember sitting in the theater thinking, oh boy, I don't like this choice. And I get it. Like they're just trying to give Peter a motivation of doing a bad thing because he has a symbiote on him. This is just a number of things going on in that third movie that just don't quite work. So I like the initial concept of the character, but the more they revealed about his backstory, the less I started to enjoy seeing the character. Now, moving on to Venom. I understand what they were trying to do with the casting of Topher Grace. I know everybody hated it. They wanted Eddie Brock to be this giant football-sized dude. They wanted him to look like Thomas Hayden Church. And I understand that. But what they were trying to do was find a mirror image of Peter Parker, uh, in this case, Tobey Maguire. I get that. So I was able to live with the casting. Now, the performance, not the role for him. There's so many moments where I was just kind of cringing. It it just doesn't fit. And I get it. He he needs to come off as a little desperate and pathetic. But I don't know, man. And I don't think solving it would have been, oh, they should have just got the Eddie Brock we're familiar with, this big buff dude. That would not have solved it, I don't think. It was just a failure in writing the character and casting the character. He approached it as like a drug addict or an alcoholic. And I'm like, why? Because that's not the character. Eddie Brock is this photographer who's serious, that wants to be taken serious. And he's frustrated that he has to take paparazzi pictures. There's your angle. The ultimate problem is this character never should have been in this movie. And if he was, he should have been set up for Spider-Man 4. And, and that's honestly, that's just a fault. So here's what I would have done. I wouldn't have casted Topher Grace. I would have casted a better actor to play Eddie Brock. And I still would have gone with the same angle that they decided to do in that third film. The only difference I would have made is I would have set him up for the fourth film as the big bad rather than having him join forces with Sandman. And I would have had Sandman join forces with New Goblin or whatever you want to call him so that we can finally resolve this conflict between Harry and Peter. I wanted a more gradual, real grounded approach of Peter and Venom bonding. And I think you're right. There should have been a setup and Spider-Man 4 should have been him versus Venom and Eddie Brock. In the comic books, it was, it was after this crazy event, he got the black suit. We didn't know why he got the black suit, but during this event, he got the black suit. He's rocking, and then all of a sudden, you see minor character changes. And then it comes to find out, oh, this thing is symbiotic, trying to take over Peter Parker. And then you would have had your setup. The conflict I feel Spider-Man 3 should have been is the struggle of Peter trying to save his friend from himself and him deciding whether or not um, Harry was too far gone. To 
to save. And that internal struggle, what to do with him, would have made a much better film. Yeah, it would have. And that's just not what we got. And no, it, it is <laughs> not. Instead, we got Tobey Maguire acting like a douche. Yeah, I'm totally fine with having Venom in this film series. I just wasn't fine with what they did in Spider-Man 3. Well, I will say this. I did enjoy Topher Grace as Venom. I thought he was funny. The voice was wrong. The look was wrong. But whenever you saw Topher Grace, not entirely Venom, the whole time I was thinking, you know who should have been cast as Peter Parker in Spider-Man this whole entire freaking time? Topher Grace. That, that, that was my takeaway at the end of spider Man 3. That, uh, that would have been something. It would have been something, but when it came to their quips between Spider-Man and Venom, there was a clear winner in my mind. And I still feel this way. But just to go back on uh, Thomas Church as Flip Marco, up until the reveal that he killed Uncle Ben, I felt like he was the most sympathetic villain of the bunch. No, he was. Like I said earlier, everything was going fine with Sandman until we got that backstory where he's yeah. actually the one responsible for killing yeah. Uncle Ben. Because I just didn't like re- rehashing all of that. I'm all about moving forward. You know, we're in the third movie and you're rehashing stuff from the first movie. It's just kind of aggravated me. I will have to say like his transformation scene after he becomes Sandman is something that I'm still thinking about after my rewatch of this film. For all of the introductions that we got of villains, I thought that was the most cinematically beautifully captured thing that Raimi's done in all three films. You still felt the emotion of him trying to pick up that locket and trying to reform for his daughter. Yeah, it all worked. It worked because this is what Raimi wanted. And the stuff that didn't work is the stuff that Raimi didn't want. And it was clear. I was at the Comic-Con in 2006 when they were promoting this movie. And you can tell on Raimi's face and answering questions, he wasn't really into the idea of having Venom in this movie. Oh, dear God. Okay, People I'm sorry. People were asking plenty of questions to Topher Grace. Almost nobody asked Thomas Hayden Church a question. People oh. were hyped for this Venom character. We I- saw a trailer that wasn't fully completed rendering to get us hyped for this movie and they're explaining everything that's going on and then I even have a recording of Sam Raimi talking about who Harry's supposed to be now because we were all confused all of us in Hall H 6,000 people or whatever in this room (laughs) confused who Harry's going to be and seeing Sam Raimi explain it and I'll I'll give him that it's not the worst explanation but still I can still feel that moment sitting with my friends and thinking I don't know about this movie there's three villains I don't think he can juggle all of this. It sounds like Venom's kind of getting shoehorned into this movie and everything came to fruition. I want to see that footage. I want to hear that recording. Yeah, I'll, I'll post it on the page. That's amazing that you were there for that reveal. Probably the only one in the room besides Raimi feeling the same dread. That's what makes me laugh a little. Hey, people were hyped. Venom's a very popular character. I want to hit on some of these other minor characters yeah. before yeah. we yeah. move on. One of my favorites is um, J. Jenna Jameson, played by J.K. Simmons, the aggressive chief of the Daily Bugle. I mean, he's perfect. You know, as someone who enjoyed watching the animated series, like I mentioned before, J. Jonah Jameson, it felt like he captured that character perfectly. He's funny. He's arrogant. He hates Spider-Man. It's everything you could have ever wanted. If there's any character that was the most true of all the iterations, that's the one. He was able to mimic the voice that I think so many of us remember from the cartoon. I had to bring up Flash Thompson because he's played by Joe 
Mingalello. So I was going to bring him up and only because that it's kind of funny that it's him because I didn't really recognize him. And not only right. that, he looks so old. Out of all the people who are obviously not high schoolers, he's the one who looks not high school the most. Like, okay, David, he was held back. Okay. Sure he was. About <laughs> 10 times. Like, my gosh. Yes, because he's Flash Thompson. And the funny thing is, he was in Spider-Man 3. He was at Harry's funeral. And I was thinking, what the hell is this guy doing here? They didn't even like each other. So strange. He's about to blow up. He's about to get that true blood money and fame. That, to me, is just the Raimi pull. Because Raimi gets a lot of people that you just know to be cameos in these films. Or even, like, super small roles. So, granted, Elizabeth Banks hasn't blown up yet. But there she is, is Betty Brandt small bit role in all three films. You also see, and this is just the first movie alone, you also see cameos by Octavia Spencer, <laughs> Macho Man Randy Savage, Lucy Lawless, Jim right. Norton, the comedian, mm-hmm. and of course, Bruce Campbell. He's in every movie. And then in the second movie, you see Joel McHale, right. Emily Deschanel, Daniel Day Kim, Asif Manvi, who plays the pizza store owner, Joe's Pizza, John Landis, and Phil Lamar, Phil Lamar, popular voice actor. This is such a Raimi staple where it's like, I'm just going to invite a bunch of my friends to have little bit roles and cameos in all of my movies. It's, it, it, it's so it was, funny. It was just so much going on. I think I texted you. I'm like, holy crap. You, I think you texted me first telling me about uh, Emily Deschanel. I'm like, yep. I'm like, did you see Lucy Lawless in the first one? It was crazy, which was kind of so jarring because it took me back because they would do that all the time in these stupid films. Pack famous people upon famous people and you're like why are we doing this <laughs> because you wouldn't see that the only big cameo is either the creator of the comic book your cameo in this film is going to be stanley that's yeah, all and- you're getting and i appreciate that yeah but that's just not how sam raimi rules he's like i'm gonna call up all my friends and see who wants to show up and i just well, think there's something really funny and cool about well, that that is kind of old school though filmmaking because when it you is. get your big break you're gonna repeat pay it forward and invite all your friends to play in this awesome playground. It just seems like it would be cool to be friends with Sam Raimi. <laughs> it would be. I just want to be a grip. Like, I just want to meet Lucy Lawless. That's the moral of the story. I'll be a grip. You want me to be an intern? I'll be your intern. And uh, yeah, I think that's it for supporting characters. We'll note really quickly, I thought it was weird to cast James Cromwell as Gwen Stacy's father and basically not even use him. And Bryce Dallas Howard is just a shrug to me. Uh, I didn't know who she was at the time. She was still coming up. She did most of her stunts. I give her credit for that. And she didn't even know she was pregnant yet. So yeah, that's pretty much it for the characters for me. What are those moments that still stick with you? That you you have those like little nice fond memories? Well, most of the action set pieces are still great. When we talk about the train scene in Spider-Man 2. So good. It's really good. And it's still really effective and powerful. It's still right before the time where everybody has cell phones and you take photos of people's faces and can send it all over the world in a matter of seconds. Right. So having that moment where he's unmasked and they say to him, hey, we'll keep your secret Spider-Man because you saved our lives. Like there's something really noble about that. Spider-Man 2 I guess is how you want to interpret it. Sam Raimi definitely tries to make New York City more of a character in Spider-Man 2. Whether mm. or not you think that's good, that's debatable. But um, yeah, so I like that train scene a lot. The first film between Green Goblin and Spider-Man the final battle in the warehouse I thought was a really cool scene because the music stops. Danny Elfman's score is nowhere to be heard. 
yard and you just see these two people just really slugging it out. It's a really tense moment. And Sam Raimi's really good at this because he's a horror director. He's one of the most notable horror directors of all time. So he knows how to build that tension of cutting off the music and the sound mixing in the scene mm-hmm. is really, really good. And the cobwebs everywhere and the bone crunching, the glass breaking and the wood breaking. It's just such a fantastic scene. And then in the second film, when you have the bank robbery scene, having Peter chase down Doc Ock when he has Aunt May held captive, really great stuff. So all of the action stuff really worked out, even in the third film. I will say in the third film, the fight between Venom and Spider-Man was pretty good. I thought it was kind of clever how they came up with the pipes and knocking the pipes around for the noise and trying to separate Mm -hmm. the symbiote from Eddie Brock. It's good stuff. I'm not going to lie. Seeing the Sandman in his giant form looked really great visually to me. I think it still holds up really well. Yeah, so as far as like big action set pieces, all of those really stood out to me and I thought they did a really amazing job with all of them. Now for the smaller moments. Rewatching the first movie recently, I didn't realize how little on-screen time we have with Uncle Ben. But just in the small amount of time we had with him, that really stuck with me. Their little conversation in the car, the last conversation they have, man, that actually like hurt a little bit knowing that would be the last conversation he would have with his uncle, how he kind of snaps at him. And I don't know how I blocked this out of my memory, but when Peter is holding Uncle Ben and Uncle Ben is like, you see his life leaving him on the ground. I was like, holy crap, man. I don't remember this at all. This is kind of traumatizing. (laughs) Watching watching your uncle die on screen like that. I was thinking like, holy crap, that's intense. (laughs) Do you know how many like Gen Zers were traumatized by that when they went to go see this? Really effective. I thought for a second, how did they get away with this? <laughs> no, you know, I will say this. We had two of these scenes now. This is the most effective of the two. Yeah, he's acting selfishly and impulsive. He's trying to get to this thing. And he does it in such a believable way that he's just trying to get where he needs to go. We're Andrew Garfield's version of this. I just want to slap him. I'm like, how disrespectful. There was like intentional cruelty in one scene and there was an intentional cruelty. Toby McGuire did in that scene. It just comes off as believable. You're just brushing them off. You ultimately know that he doesn't mean what he says and you know he'll eventually apologize if he ever got a chance to. And that pain comes from the regret of him not saying what he really felt at that moment. It's really effective and it just carries over in the next film as well. Second film I really love because Peter Parker feels really relatable because he's trying to balance all of these things in his life. He's trying to go to school and but he's constantly late for school. He's trying to have a job but he's constantly late for his job. He even gets fired. He's frequently underappreciated at the Daily Bugle. He can't be with the woman he loves because he's Spider-Man. So he's trying to do all of these things and it gets to the point where he loses his powers. He's having an anxiety attack really. It's basically a metaphor for an anxiety attack. He, He just can't balance all these things so something has to give and I just thought it was a really cool decision for him to stop being Spider-Man for a little bit and just go back to having a normal life. And then later on, when he has that discussion with Aunt May and he comes to the realization that it's like, oh no, I need to be Spider-Man. You know, this, this city needs me. I'm a beacon of hope. I thought that was just a really, really great scene. So with all that aside, the best scene in the movie for me is when Peter tells Aunt May about the night of Uncle Ben's death. There's this moment where he goes to reach for her hand after he tells her and she pulls away and you're just like, oh, you kind of squirm a little bit because you're like, oh, you feel that. It's so 
earned. That's the beauty of this Spider-Man. That's the beauty of this Aunt May. They set this all up so wonderfully in the first film and carry it over for the second film. And with all the elements going on, it just all pays off. And that's, to me, the best parts of all the movies. I'm a sucker for the dramatic, really. Uh, You can give me all these great action set pieces and it can all be a lot of fun. But if you're not giving me anything to emotionally connect to, then Mm -hmm. I'm not going to really think that this is going to be something special to me. So those moments were just really great. And that's where I think we got away from in Spider-Man 3. Well, yeah, let's go ahead and talk about, of course, what we now call the um, low points for everyone. I think we're all in agreement. Spider-Man 3 was like, at this point, we're like, I don't know if I would go see a Spider-Man 4. It was in that type of neighborhood, at least for me. I don't know how you were feeling when you walked out of Spider-Man 3. Were there moments when I started to have my doubts? Yes. We talked about how I was at Comic-Con and I hear that there's three villains and I'm thinking, oh no. But I love the first two films. So I had faith that they could pull this off. I'm sitting in the theater and I'm realizing, oh wait, they can't pull this off. Granted, there's moments in Spider-Man 3 that kind of make me laugh. After Peter Webb slings around for a little bit in his new outfit and then he is on the side of the building, he takes his mask off and he's looking at his mask and he's like, this is something else. Like that made me laugh. That's hilarious. (laughs) So I don't know if you've seen all the Evil Dead movies, but in the third Evil Dead, Army of Darkness, Uh it is just Sam Raimi at his most unleashed. And in the third film, he got to be unleashed quite a bit. When Peter is Dark Peter Parker, or as many people like to call him, Emo Peter. I mean, he was channeling some Pete Wentz. Um, That hair, I'm sorry. It was insufferable, I'm not going to lie. The dancing, the jazz bar scene I had a lot of problems with because it's like, since when did Peter know how to play the piano? We've never seen him do that before. Does a symbiote know how to play piano? (laughs) No, and he shouldn't. He shouldn't because (laughs) it's alien. Exactly. So it was a really strange choice. I didn't like that he hit Mary Jane. I thought that's where they crossed the line. I feel like that was forced. That they needed something for him to realize the symbiote was bad and they had to, Peter needed to separate himself from the symbiote. To fix that, they could have easily had Mary Jane just have a conversation with him, like in the alley outside the bar or something, or just a shouting match or something like that, you know? Or like, yeah. or just like seeing her breaking down in tears and crying and that would have been you the know, realization that- for him that he, wow, look at her. She's at like her lowest point and I put her in this position and I feel, I should feel terrible about it. You know, like kind of bringing back to the emotional levels that we've seen from the first two movies. But instead it was an action of hitting her. And that to me just didn't work. It felt forced. And yeah, so there was just so many things in that movie that was not working out. And then of course you have the new Goblin. I wasn't really into it. He never really was a legitimate threat. And then once he regained his memories, granted it has given me so many memes that I still use to this day. That's when I started to really hate James Franco. Granted, he wasn't given much, but that camp that came out of him. Dude, I'm a gay man. I'll love me some camp. And even I'm saying, God damn, this is too much. And to wrap this all up, what I will say is, in spite of everything that happened in Spider-Man 3, I still wanted Spider-Man 4 with this group. And I am sad we didn't get it. But at the same time, I easily came to terms with never having it. So we were going to get the lizard because we had... um, Yeah, because Kirk Connors was set up with Dylan Baker. We finally would have gotten the Vulture and we would have gotten Felicia Hardy. People were in talks. Anne Hathaway as Felicia Hardy. How do you not want to see that? 
dude. I would have loved to have seen that. When I read all this, I'm like, okay. Because I never thought in a million years they would have stopped with Spider-Man 3. Did you think that they would have stopped with 3? I didn't. I was on MySpace and a couple of my friends were messaging me saying, hey, I'm hearing some news that there's not going to be a Spider-Man 4. And I'm thinking, oh no, oh no. And then later that night, the news broke out that Raimi was gone, Tommy McGuire's gone, like everybody's gone. Granted, Tommy McGuire had a three movie contract, but again, like you just said, I was expecting a Spider-Man 4 with all of them because the movie still made a ton of money and they still had a lot of ideas. So I thought it was going to happen and it didn't because Sam Raimi just didn't think he could pull off having the movie ready by 2011. They had a release date set and he just didn't see it as a possibility and he could have used that as an excuse. Maybe he just didn't want to do it anymore. This is possible, but I am disappointed and you're right. I mean, at the time, it just felt like that was going to happen. We were in the middle of the early stages of the superhero boom. I didn't think they were going to be like, you know what? We're going to reboot the whole damn thing. So if someone doesn't want to watch, which is kind of crazy because it's a trilogy, doesn't want to watch one of these films or just want to watch one of them, what would you recommend they do? Is there a preferred roach of viewing order? I don't think so. I think you just got to watch one, two, and three. It's unfortunate because I wish I could say stop at two, but they did set up the conflict between Harry and Peter. And if you want to see that get resolved, then you have to watch Spider-Man 3. But I will say, though, if you don't care about that, don't watch Spider-Man 3. So is there any other source materials that might enrich a franchise's viewing experiences? So I only wrote down the Spider-Man 2 video game. It's open world of NYC. There's side missions. There's extra villains. And it still follows the main plot of the film. I think it's an excellent video game. It's so much fun. I think I still have my copy. I think I have it at my parents' house. I don't think I've ever got the chance to play it. I miss out on Spider-Man 2. Like, Aaron has all these great memories of Spider-Man 2 and a bunch of other video games that I never got to experience. I just hear from second hand. It's an incredible game, and I know there's probably no easy way to get access to it right now, but if you're able to somehow get your hands on that video game, I strongly recommend playing it. It really does make it fun. It's Tobey Maguire as the voice of Spider-Man. That's cool. <laughs> I would also recommend the early Steve Ditko and Stanley run because a lot of the inspiration for this film series came from this early run of the comic book. You won't get Venom in that era, but you'll get um, Spider-Man No More and If This Be My Destiny. A lot of the stuff that is especially inspired um, Spider-Man 2, I think would enjoy going back and reading those classic tales. And you actually get a nice introduction um, in those early run of Mary Jane Watson. And of course, you'll get the night Gwen Stacy die too, which is a great pivotal moment um, nice. in Spider-Man's um, career. Would you want a continuation series of this universe? Not at this point. I mean, <laughs> not not where McGuire and Franco and Dunst are at in their careers. It just right. wouldn't feel right seeing them mm-hmm. in those roles again. I don't know what's going to happen with our upcoming Spider-Man 3. Tom mm-hmm. Holland has now recently said Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield as far as I know are not in the movie. I don't know what's going on with that. We also heard about Doc Ock and Electro going to be in this movie. I don't know what to believe anymore. So my straight answer to all of it is don't give me any of it. I'm not really a multiverse fan anyways. I'm on this weird fence because we got into Spider-Verse and the Spider-Verse was like this big thing that I think many people want to see. But I feel like the animated film did it so much better because you can't do Spider-Ham in live action. I'm sorry. No, you can't. And you can't have a mecha giant robot in real life without making it look like a 
goddamn Transformer. I completely agree. Continuation series, I wouldn't be opposed for an animated series. Do a Disney Plus thing. It's funny you say that because usually I'm the one who's always like, hey, just make it animated. But this time I'm like, I'm not even saying I even want that. But you are. So I think that's kind of funny. If Raimi wants to produce it and make it happen, I'll watch it. So let's move on to um, who do you think might enjoy this film series? Or if anyone's on the fence, why should they take that plunge and dive into um, this iteration of Spider-Man? Well, I think if you haven't had the opportunity to take the time to watch these three movies, then you really should because these three movies, for better or worse, really capture those early stages of breakthrough computer graphics that we know today. Granted, some of it does look outdated, but at the time, it was really groundbreaking stuff. And it has aged decent enough. It's not like some of the computer graphics we saw in Blade. Those graphics are awful. Like 90s, late 90s CGI is really bad. It wasn't until really Spider-Man came out where we're like, oh, so this is the potential of computer graphics. So just getting a history on visual effects, you should definitely check out these movies for that reason. In terms of wanting something that's more than just action-based, these movies provide a lot of great character depth that you don't normally see in some of the comic book movies that come out today. People like to criticize the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies for basically being like television episodes. And it's true. Each movie does have their own little touch. They do. There is enough uniqueness to some of them. But at the same time, it's like they're all part of something that they need to abide to. These three movies don't really have that restriction. They have their own world, their own rules, and their own quirks. And I think there's something to really appreciate about that. I just think that there's a lot you can still get out of it. If you want a little bit of campiness, these movies are good for you. If you want those character depth moments, these are great. And the costumes are really cool. I love the Spider-Man outfit. I love the interpretation of the Green Goblin in the first film. I thought Doc Ock looked pretty cool. The tentacles look fantastic. And in the third film, the Sandman looks great. My only criticism out of all of that is that Venom doesn't quite look up to my standard. And that's unfortunate. It's this perfect trilogy that came out in the time where we weren't quite sure what comic book movies could be, but they were saying it could be this. It left the footprint and it still deserves your time. Are there any suggestions for similar TV shows or franchises that someone who really enjoys this trilogy might want to watch next? Yeah, the only thing I could suggest is the 1995 Spider-Man series. Find those Green Goblin episodes, all of them. I think they're all really good. You don't have to seek out every Dr. Octopus episode. I think there's only like two of them where he kind of stands on his own. The other ones he's tied in with other villains and he's even like a background character towards the end there. So I wouldn't really look into those and I'll probably research later which episodes those are. I can follow up with that in our final thoughts and find those Venom episodes because they're awesome. So those are the only things that I could recommend. I will also say check out Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse because the Jake Johnson Spider-Man is pretty close enough to this trilogy's Peter Parker. I love that film. It's great. So here are a few of my off-the-wall ones. Of course, Spider-Man Homecoming. I feel like this is the feeling that he wanted to capture in those early scenes of Peter Parker to sort of figure out who he wants to be a Spider-Man. And we get, I feel like, a more impactful lesson about with great power comes great responsibility. I mean, we get a version of Uncle Ben and Tony Stark. The great thing about this film, it works well. You don't have to see all the movies preceding it. This is why I love this film because it's standalone. It kind of is standalone. We rarely get a film that stands by itself where you have to 
have watched every single film before it and it doesn't have an infinity stone and we finally get vulture as our villain so i can't talk more about this film and saying like if you like this era of spider-man this is the closest you're gonna get shazam pretty much a kid who discovers powers and him dealing with responsibility of being a hero i think this is the closest one i can think of that sort of fits that archetype that is also fun for anyone at any age well and and another reason why this works and you probably didn't even think of this reason is also directed by someone who is a known horror director and david f sandberg you do get that one or two moments of horror that you just don't see coming and actually i forgot to mention the doc ock hospital scene as one of the high points that's such a fantastic scene is sam raimi going back to his bag of tricks of filming horror and in shazam the scene where he wipes out the board of directors is just like holy crap (laughs) you know it just completely catches you off guard and you have to remind yourself oh yeah a horror guy is directing this and he just can't help himself (laughs) he can't help himself and of course the whole bit with the lightning (laughs) makes me laugh even now zach levi one day we'll get to a series that's featuring helm and i can like go on and on but today's not that day finally big hero six similar archetype of a young boy trying to avenge the death of someone he his older brother and him trying to be a hero it's kind of stretching it but it's still fun it's still in that disney family of marvel films because originally big hero six is a property from marvel that they just took the initial concept and some of the names and made its own standalone film but it still has a lot of that heart and acting great action adventure films that you do expect from that company is that it did we do it did we talk about spider-man we survived we survived an onslaught from the sinister six we made it out okay i think yeah i think we did this was a lot of fun and i'm glad that i was able to talk about something that was really close to me and that you were able to have the experience of loving these films as well so that we can bounce off each other and, and discuss it stay tuned for final thoughts and our mailbag Welcome back. Romeo, this was your second time being the only host and the second time right. me being the only guest. First time around, you said it was a little nerve wracking. What was it like the second time doing it? It still is because you know what? I know my role. I'm the peppy sidekick who gives smart Alec remarks. That's my place. I get it. I'm good at it. It is hard. It's been a long time where I had to lead the conversation. It's a skill that I know that I'm not the best at. I need to work at, but it is still nerve wracking for me. It is just as nerve wracking being the guest. (laughs) In in my mind, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, is this what our guests are going through? But maybe I'm just thinking about the show. I'm just thinking, okay, let's get this going. Let's keep going. I'm just getting in host mode when I should be in guest mode. It was really fun talking about Spider-Man, but man, it was nerve wracking for me as well. So it's kind of funny that we both had the same. It is because for me, when I'm in guest mode or sidekick mode, mode like it's a much more of a relaxing position because you just get to geek out about whatever topic you're like we're talking about where you're in host mode like you have to make sure like we hit all the points we're able to flow into one topic to the next try to find those transitions try not to cut off the person but also keep us on track i have a new appreciation for what you do (laughs) and you're and you're amazing at it thank you and i'm thinking back how big of an asshole have i getting the guests off track 
Like, yeah, I'm an asshole. I get it now. Now I know how you feel when I just go off the rails with the guest. Like, you're the cop trying to stop us. I mean, they get like thumb on the weeds, just gunning it off the cliff. That does happen. But uh, I don't hate it when it happens. I don't want people to think like I don't want them to just be themselves or be comfortable and, and just stay on track and let's get this done. In the end, it's supposed to be a safe space and people can yes. rant all they want and have as much fun as they want. And if they feel like that their time is being intruded, then they just I want them to feel comfortable enough to tell us so that way we can keep the show going. It can be challenging when it's you and me hosting and I'm trying to move the show along, but I'm glad you're able to appreciate that. But at the same time, I do appreciate how you recall all the little details that I tend to forget, especially in this episode. There were things in this episode that I wanted to talk about that I totally forgot, but you managed to remember it, circle back to it. It helped make this show even better than what I could have provided without that assistance. It it all worked out. This was a fun discussion. It was fun talking about Spider-Man because like I mentioned in the podcast, I went to see all three movies in theaters. I saw them with my dad and you could say like, would it have been better to get somebody who's so knowledgeable about Spider-Man? But again, like we talked about, just having that blank slate going into these movies, I think made the conversation coming from a different angle. I don't know about more interesting, but definitely interesting. It made it interesting, but at the same time, you didn't know the expectation. I think a lot of us didn't know the business of adaptations because a lot of people in our age bracket haven't seen their favorite things being butchered before or being translated from one medium to the next. So we didn't know what was going on. And plus, we didn't have interviews. I think we talked about the podcast extensively. Like we had to dig for information about these films because we didn't have a Tom Holland on social media just spoiling everything for us. True. If we wanted something spoiled, we need to go to the one website that had that connection where PAs were risking like life and limb to give us details. Yeah, I think that's just what it all boils down to is age really does make a difference. We are older. We are able to sympathize. We are able to comprehend the complications of making a movie. We talked about in the episode about Sam Raimi having creative differences with the producers of Sony. Shoehorning Venom into Spider-Man 3, the fallout of that is we didn't get a Spider-Man 4 with Sam Raimi. We are able to reflect on that and realize, wow, it's really hard to make a movie. There's so many things that go behind the scenes that we learn or never get to learn. And we just have to learn to just be more sympathetic towards the creative process. All right. Time to move on to things that we talked about in the episode I wanted to follow up on. Mm -hmm. So we talked about the Twin Towers teaser trailer and the poster. We'll post the teaser trailer on our Facebook page. The poster, I did some research seeing if I can find an authentic one online for sale. I did seem to find one that has a certificate of authenticity from Stan Lee. It is $549. And the reason I bring that up is because Romeo talked about how someone definitely has a copy and that thing is going to cost a lot of money. Well, that's true. <laughs> what did you think about that, Romeo? They must have gotten it from a movie theater because I don't remember any of that stuff being available for purchase. Next up, I didn't know what J. Jonah Jameson's son's name was in Spider-Man 3. I guess that it was J. Jonah Jameson Jr. because why not? It just seemed like something J. Jonah Jameson would do would be name his son after him. Well, his son's name is John Jameson and he was played by Daniel Gillies, who some people may recognize from Vampire Diaries and the 
originals. Also, I mentioned that the Green Goblin fell into a vortex in the Spider-Man cartoon. It was actually a portal. Synopsis of that episode says portal, so that's what I'm going to say. Okay, I mentioned in the episode that I have Comic-Con videos of the Spider-Man 3 panel, and I will post those on our Facebook page. I think I have two. I definitely have one with Sam Raimi answering a question about who Harry Osborn is in the third film and him explaining that he's basically New Goblin. And I want to say I might have another one of an actor answering a question, but I'm not 100% sure. I have to go back into my um, external hard drive and find it and figure it out. But yeah, it'll be cool to stroll down memory lane. I mean, these are videos that probably no one has seen either in a long time or you can't find anywhere on the internet. I am excited to see those Comic-Con videos, which I'm going to be studying his face (laughs) when he speaks, when he talks about the specific things you brought up in the podcast. Because Yeah, that's the thing. I'm trying to remember if I have videos of him explaining Venom or anything like that. But um, the whole experience, I could just feel the disdain coming from him. And if you have your own videos, please feel free to share them on our Facebook page. Yeah, do that too. (laughs) That'd be cool. Show me your Comic-Con videos. I want (laughs) to see them. Okay, now we can move on. Romeo, I think you wanted to do some follow-up on the Joss Whedon situation that has been developing over the last few weeks. I don't know where to begin. It's just a complicated story. I didn't think the depravity of Joss Whedon would reach the levels of Brian Singer, but a lot of stuff came out, a lot of reporting from Deadline, and a lot of it's also coming from Bleeding Cool News, which you can take it where you want, but a lot of it is from firsthand accounts from individual like Chris McCarpenter off her Facebook or Instagram post, along with Michelle Trachtenberg. She talks about the, the verbal abuse that she's experienced, and it's coming out that it stemmed from the studios wanting her to be on the show and Josh Whedon didn't. And that led to the casual cruelty as many people who's worked around Josh Whedon has described. Michelle Trachtenberg came out with her, um, I want to say accusation, but she did say that there was an onset rule that Josh Whedon and Michelle are not allowed to be in the same room together alone. That had to be in a third party because apparently there was an inappropriate conversation between the two of them. Sarah Michelle Gellar has a, she made a statement that she believes I'll survive she didn't go into her own personal experience, which according to sources, two production sources that didn't want to be named, that they've had a rocky relation at the beginning of the show to the fact that she didn't want his name to be said in her presence. There was a writer from from Firefly where Josh had this joy of making female writers cry when giving notes on a script. So there's a lot of damning things that are coming out. There are a lot of fans that are just feel betrayed and confused because he portrayed himself as being this feminist icon. There's a article from Collider. I'll try to post it on there. What it's like to be a fan of Buffy. Liz Shannon Miller published about earlier this month. We're going on to the different like fandom boards talking about how people are now regretting getting tattoos about Buffy or loving Buffy. And I kind of agree with her conclusion, I think, at this point. And the way Sarah Marshall Gellar puts in her post is that because Sarah Marshall Gellar specifically said that I'm proud to have my name associated with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but I no longer wish to have my name associated with Joss Whedon. And I think at this point, at least the way I see it with a lot of his works, specifically Buffy, because Buffy will always be my favorite TV show. Buffy no 
longer belongs to Joss Whedon. I think it belongs to the fandom. And I think a lot of people feel the same way about a lot of works that are out there. Because the creators messed up doesn't mean that we neglect the work that touched many lives. And I'm still struggling with it. I'm slowly going into that mindset like, okay, I think I can separate the two. I can still enjoy Buffy, but still condemn what this man has done. And I think that's a good landing spot. With that summer note over, time to move on to the good stuff. Okay, so I've mentioned in the past that if you do comments on our post or if you leave review that I would read it onto the show. Well, we do have a Apple podcast review from Tyler Ty 95 and the subject of the review is a binge-worthy podcast about binge-worthy media. And he says, I personally love listening to Binge Essentials, particularly because it's different from any show or movie review podcast that I've come across. David and Romeo have a formula for how they want to tackle a show or franchise, which can be noticed in guest questions throughout the episodes that they've released to date. The show is about covering a movie or franchise and weighing the pros and cons for why a particular show or franchise is worth binging. And if not, how would it best be viewed? I appreciate the fact that the show has yet to divulge in the host and guests completely dogging a series and that the hosts do their research when discussing the intricacies around a particular property, whether that be who starred, guest starred, wrote, produced, and directed. This is the first podcast I've listened to, granted I don't listen to very many, where David and Romeo go out of their way to correct any misinformation that may have been said by addressing it in their final thoughts. For future episodes, I'd love for the host to expand their bullpen of guests and I'm sure that will happen upon the growth of the show. Thank you so much, Tyler Ty95, for that review. It really does encapsulate everything we try to do for the right. show. <laughs> I'm happy someone catches that we're trying hard. I mean, work really hard to produce it because it's tough when we have other jobs. It's tough to sort of dissect the important parts of this review that is important for what we're going to talk about next. We do try really hard. We don't just hit record and then just talk about something thing and then stop recording and post it. That's not what this show is. There's a lot to the show because we want to make it feel special in terms of when we bring people on, we don't want them to just explain why it's important to them, but we want to also explain what we saw during our watches and sometimes rewatches. There are podcasts where they just hop on and they're not prepared. They're hoping that their charm and comedy is what's going to get them to the episode and, and be entertaining and whatever. It works for them. They get the subscribers. We're not comedians. <laughs> no, so no. we can't pull that off. We're not that charming. So we can't pull that off. What we do have is sympathy and the understanding that there's some things that mean a lot to a lot of people. Like Twilight's a great example of that. We're not huge Twilight fans, but we can understand the appeal to it and then have a good discussion about it. We just want to make our guests feel special and we want to make our listeners feel like that we're actually trying and not just some other podcast. So there's a lot of time spent on research, rewatch, editing, having these final thoughts like these to own up to any mistakes that we did and just have an honest discussion about the experience that we had with the episode. It's more than just entertainment. We want to be informative and helpful because I think with so much media out there to consume, it can be intimidating because you may not have been able to watch these when they first aired and people are kind of curious whether or not should I invest in say 15 seasons of Supernatural? Is it too late? Will I get anything out of it? But we try to make it 
easy and accessible because I think there's a lot of talk now on certain social media platforms about gatekeeping that only true fans can like a certain franchise that if you haven't read say all the books or seen all of the movies and read all the manga and then then watch the anime series you're not allowed to be a part of this franchise my philosophy is I try to keep the door open for anyone that wants to experience it hey if you don't like it that's cool maybe it's not for you maybe there's something else I always want to encourage people to not be afraid to start watching something that they're not entirely familiar with because the stigma that goes on with some of the fandoms that if you weren't there since day one, you can't be part of the club. Totally agree. That is why this is also a good time to say that as much as we love releasing episodes week to week, the workload can be a little overwhelming for just two people. And we are going to take a small break. We're still going to be working on the show. Basically, what we call it is our pre-production phase. We're going to be scheduling new guests. We're going to be watching a bunch of shows in preparation and eventually we are going to start recording again and we'll be releasing new episodes and it's not going to be a very long break. We're only looking maybe at a month the most before we Uh release our next episode and we really hope you guys enjoy the next slate of episodes that we have lined up. In the meantime, you can always go back and listen to the episodes you haven't checked out. If you have anything that you would like to say to us, you can do it at bingeessentials at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at bingeessentials. You can find us on Instagram at Binge Essentials. You can find me on Instagram at David Rocha Binge. You can find me on Twitter at David Rocha Radio. You can find Romeo on Instagram at rmora02. You can find him on Twitter at rmora1. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to rate and review us. That would be a huge help. We will definitely give you a shout out on the show and read your review like we did with this review. And be sure to follow us on all these social media pages. That way you know the exact date that we're coming back because we haven't exactly nailed down a date yet, but we'll still be releasing episodes on Thursday and we will be releasing a trailer getting you excited for the next season. So keep us subscribed. That way you stay informed. With all that being said, thanks for listening. Catch you guys in about a month.